Um, so we are continuing in our lessons in Christology. Uh, that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you were with us last Sunday evening, or first let me say, if you weren't with us last Sunday evening, um, I'm going to try, and when we, when I do a summary of last Sunday evening, I'm going to try my best to speed you up. Um, and I know that in light of last Sunday evening's lesson, uh, when you hear things that you've never been exposed to, usually the first thing you do is reject it. Is, I've never heard this before, uh, so you know, I'm just going to, to throw it out. Um, even in light of some, even in light of biblical evidence for, because you know, quite frankly, anyone could hold to a doctrine of the Christian faith and you know, tack on whatever Bible verses and say this is what it is, and they can find some church father who held to this uh, or or one another, and they can say um, this is what we ought to believe. Uh, but I hope last week you've seen that uh, from the overall testimony of Scripture, specifically the pattern of Scripture, not merely just a chapter and a verse, but more so the overall pattern and what the Bible says uh, concerning Christ's descent, um, at least uh, in my eyes, uh, authorize, authorizes uh, the doctrine. Last Sunday evening, we considered what happened between the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So, again, if someone was to ask you, what happened in between Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection in the empty tomb? Usually, and I talked about, I talked to this uh, with, with Isaac earlier, uh, is usually when we speak of the work of Christ, we talk about the life of Christ, what he did for us and his uh, obedience in, in living a life to God's holy law. We talk about the miracles in there and the parables and all these other things. We talk about the death of Christ on the cross, his bloody sacrifice. We say that he died. He was in the tomb for three days. And then we jump to his resurrection and ascension. And we say a lot when concerning uh, life, sufferings on the cross, resurrection and ascension. We say a lot of things, but we normally don't pay a lot of attention to what Christ was doing in the tomb for three days. What exactly was he doing? Now, a lot of people think, well, he's just there, right? And I think last week when we considered, well, what does it mean to die? Well, first we have to understand what does it mean to be a human, to be a human is to be both body and soul composite. You can't be a human without a soul or a body. So at death, the body remains inside the tomb while your soul goes to a specific place because the soul is um, eternal and material. So it goes to a certain place. It doesn't remain in the tomb or in the coffin with the body. It goes to either heaven or hell. We know that. So then we're asking, then what happened at Christ's death? We know that his body remained in the tomb, and we all confess that Christ is a true man, who is also truly God, but he's truly man. Then if he's truly man, then he dies in the same manner that we all die, that his soul leaves his body. His soul must go somewhere. Okay? And that's what we have to consider when we think about the death of Christ, that in Christ dying, in his tomb, his soul leaves his body and it goes somewhere. This is so essential for us because you know, in the 6th century, there was a heresy called Apollinarianism, which essentially said that Christ wasn't truly human, but rather he was merely a human. He, he assumed a human body. The eternal word assumed a human body without an eternal soul or human soul. And we must confess that Jesus Christ was both body and soul composite. He was a true human being. So, back to the question. What did Christ do between his cross work and the resurrection? 
And the Apostles' Creed gives us the answer. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was crucified, died, and buried. And here's where we get where Christ, what Christ did, or where He was. He descended into hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead. Now, immediately, that's a jump out at us, right? When we read, okay, I, I accept he was conceived of the Holy Spirit by the born, born, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, was buried, all of that, amen. But what about when it says he descended into hell? What are we supposed to make of that? But also with the understanding that throughout the history of the church, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, Anglicans, they all confess this. That when Jesus died, he descended into hell. What do we mean by that? And if you've been in church for quite some time, I'm sure you've heard some pastor elaborate on what they mean by that, whether it be good or bad. Um, you've heard someone say something about Jesus descending into hell. And what we considered last time, or what we, what we came to the conclusion with last time we were together is, when the apostles, um, in the apostles' creed, when it says he descended into hell, it doesn't mean that he descended to hell to suffer. He didn't descend into the fiery torment. But rather, they don't mean that necessarily. I'm going to argue that, but they didn't mean that. They meant that he descended into the place of the dead. That when Christ died, his human soul that's still hypostatically united to his divine personality, descended into the place of the dead. The place of the dead. This is where all souls, all souls descend. They go to the place of the dead. Now, in the Old Testament, this place of the dead is called Sheol. In the New Testament, this place of the dead is called Hades, if you remember. So in the Old Testament, this place of the dead is called Sheol. In the New Testament, this place of the dead is called Hades. It means the same thing, the place of the dead. All, all souls go to this place once they die. And when we consider this place of the dead, there's two compartments in which a soul finds rest at. Well, at least one part finds rest at. There's the upper part of the place of the dead, and there's the lower part of the place of the dead. The upper part of the place of the dead is where the righteous dwell. So that's all those Old Testament saints that died in faith. So if you were to, if you were, to, someone was to ask you, when Abraham, David, Isaiah, when the prophets of old, the, all these people of old in the Old Testament, when they died, where did they go? They went to the upper part of the place of the dead, and that is called paradise or Abraham's bosom. That's where they went. And if you were to ask, well, what about all the people who didn't believe in Christ before Christ's coming? Where did they go? Well, they went to the lower part of the place of the dead, which can also be called Sheol, Sheol, Hades, or Gehenna, the abyss, the pit, things like that. But we want to think of the place of the dead, and I used this analogy last time, like a house. So if, if I was to tell you if, if when you get to my house, go get my keys, what would you say? You're going to say, okay, what part of the house? Right? What part of the house do you want me to go to? You want me to go to the bedroom? You want me to go to the kitchen? Where do you want me to go? That's how we want to think of the place of the dead. The place of the dead is like the house. And then there's two compartments in the place of the dead. There's the upper part apartment and there's the lower department. Okay. What I argued for last Sunday evening is that when Christ died, he went to the place of the dead. When Christ died, he went to the place of the dead. Okay, so if you weren't here last Sunday evening, that's essentially what I argued. And then you can go back and look at the exegetical uh, basis for that. So when Christ died, he descended into the place of the dead. Now, what I want to answer this evening is 
Okay, we already have an understanding that Christ's human soul went to the place of the dead. Now we want to answer, what did he do there? What did he do there? When Christ's human soul went to the place of the dead, what did he do? And also, what compartment of the place of the dead did he go to? Did he go to where the righteous are at, or did he go to where the unrighteous are at? Where did he go? That's what we want to answer this evening. And I will do that in four subpoints. So, what did Jesus do when he descended into the place of the dead? Number one, he descended. Number one, he descended. Number two, he preached. Number three, he released. And number four, he conquered. Again, if you're taking notes, you can write, what did Jesus do when he descended, descended, went down into the place of the dead? What did he do? Number one, he descended. Number one, he descended. Number two, he preached. He preached. Number three, he released. He released. And number four, he conquered. Number four, he conquered. Let's consider the first subpoint. When Christ descended into the place of the of the place of the dead, he descended. When Christ descended into the place of the dead, he descended. Now, the wording might sound strange, right? Because we've already learned that Christ descended, he went down into the place of the dead. And here I'm saying the first thing that Christ did was he descended. We already established that he descended to the place of the dead. But here I'm asking into what section, what compartment did Christ descend to? Remember, there is the upper part of the place of the dead where the righteous dwell. And then there's the lower part of the place of the dead where the unrighteous dwell, where the wicked dwell. I'm here. I'm asking what room, what compartment, where did he go? Did he descend to the righteous part where the faithful saints are held? Or did he descend into the lower part where the wicked dwell? <clears throat> if we were, uh, if we were in Sunday uh, morning Sunday school class, I would, by a show of hands, ask, where do you think? The answer that Scripture gives to us is both. The answer that Scripture gives to us is both. In other words, if you're taking notes, when Jesus Christ descended into the place of the dead, his human soul went to both the righteous and unrighteous compartments of the dead. Again, when Christ descended into the place of the dead, his soul went to both the righteous compartment and the unrighteous compartment. Even though this is very improper, it's not correct, you can say that Christ went to both heaven or hell. Consider with me Luke 23, 43. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, and he said to me, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. If you remember last Lord's Day, paradise is another word for the upper part of the place of the dead. So if someone was to say, you will go to paradise today, essentially what they're saying is you're going to the upper part of the place of the dead. You're going to the place of the dead where all the righteous dwell, where they're comforted and all that. Paradise is where all the souls of the Old Testament saints went when they died. And here in Luke 23, Jesus is telling the thief that upon death, his soul will dwell with all those who died in faith. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying, I'm going there as well. Today you will be with me in the upper part of the place of the dead. You will be with me where the righteous dwell. So here we see a clear example of one place where Christ went when he died. He went to where the righteous dwell. He tells the thief, you're going to be with me where the righteous dwell. But in addition to Christ descending to paradise once he died, the Bible also speaks of him descending into the wicked compartment of Sheol, or the place of the dead. It also speaks of Christ descending where the wicked lay. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I need you to see this. 1 Peter chapter 3 will be in verses 18 through 22. We're, gonna just, we're just going to stay there for a minute. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> the word of the Lord says this. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, in which he also, he, in, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safety through the water. Now, this is one of the most controversial, confusing texts in all the Bible. And many interpret what Peter is saying, specifically in verses 19 and 20, when he brings up Noah, uh, as in, in the days of Noah, Jesus, through Noah, preached the gospel. That is the majority uh, interpretation of this text. Again, Peter says in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So they read this and they say, well, what Peter's doing is he's saying that Jesus, through Noah, in the days of Noah, so think of Noah, he's building the ark. Jesus, through the lips of Noah, preached the gospel to all those who were disobedient. That's what they think this text is saying. And I think it's wrong. And I'll explain more why later. But to say that Jesus preached to the disobedient men and women through the Noah or through the days of Noah ultimately breaks up the flow of the narrative. Ultimately breaks up the flow of the narrative. In the context of 1 Peter 3, so the overall story or what Peter is saying is 1 Peter 3, Peter is speaking of Christ's death and resurrection. That's it. He's speaking of Christ's death and resurrection. He says Christ has died for our sins. He was put to death in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit. So the context of 1 Peter 3 is Peter is speaking of the cross, Christ's death and his resurrection. And it wouldn't make sense for Peter to leave what Christ has done to then go and speak about what happened in the days of Noah. You get that? It would break up the flow. Just as if me and you were talking about basketball, and then suddenly you want to talk about politics. Or if you're reading a book about basketball or whatever, and then the writer starts a conversation about politics. It wouldn't make any sense. It would break up the flow, right? I think that's one of the ways in which the majority interpretation of the text is wrong. Peter is talking about Christ and his death and resurrection. And many want to say, and then he goes and talks about what happened in the days of Noah. That doesn't make any sense. So what I think Peter is doing in verses 19 and 20 is when he brings up Noah, rather than speaking about what happened in the days of Noah... He's speaking of what happened when Christ descended into the place of the dead. Simple argument. So rather than Peter speaking about what Christ did through Noah in the days of Noah, he's speaking about what Christ did when he descended into the place of the dead. Specifically, where the unrighteous dwell. Look at, once again, 1 Peter 3. Look at 19 and 20, saints. It says, and, he, and Peter says, speaking of Christ, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, there are two clues that tells us Jesus went into the wicked part of the place of the dead. There are two clues in these two verses that tell us Jesus went to where all the wicked dwell when he died. The first clue is found in verse 19. And if you look at your Bibles, that word prison, the word prison, 
Do you guys see that in your Bible? It says prison. Peter says Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And that word prison in the New Testament refers to places of punishment, like dungeons. So when you read prison, think of places of punishment. Think of of places like a dungeon. We see this in Revelation 18.2, which reads, And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. Hear Hear what the writer of Revelation said? He says that this prison is now a place of demons and unclean spirits. In a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And in Revelation 20, verse 3, that word prison is synonymous with the word abyss. And that word abyss is another word for where the wicked dwell in the place of the dead. It's a simple argument. When Peter says that word prison, it means those who dwell in the lower part of the place of the dead. Because only wicked people dwell in prisons. Only unrighteous people dwell in prisons. So when Peter says Jesus went down and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, he's saying Jesus went to the place of the dead where all the unrighteous souls dwell. But the second clue is also found in verse 19. Look at your Bibles. And it says, Peter, it says Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. Now question saints. Who are these spirits that Christ made proclamation to? Again, the text says Jesus made proclamation to the spirits. We have to ask, who are these spirits? And the text gives us the answer. The spirits are the ones who were disobedient. You see that? The spirits are the ones who are disobedient. All the ones from the days of Noah until Christ's death who died in sin and unbelief. So when it says Jesus went to this prison, he went down to the place of the dead where the wicked dwell. And we know that because when Peter says, uses that word spirits, right after that he says, they are the ones who were disobedient. So in summary, when Christ descended into the place of the dead, he descended both to the righteous compartment of the dead. We see that when Jesus says, Tells the thief, today you'll be in the paradise. But also, too, he went to the unrighteous compartment of the dead. And we see that here in 1 Peter 3. Where Peter says that he preached to the souls or the spirits that are now in prison. Okay? He visited both the saints of God and all the wicked and unrighteous souls. Now let's ask, since we know where Christ went, he went to both The upper part of Sheol, the righteous compartment, and the lower part of Sheol, the unrighteous compartment. Since we know he went to both places, now we have to ask, what did he do there? We know where he went. Now what did he do? What did he do? This is the second sub-point. What did he do? And this is where many Christians get in trouble. This is where many Christians get in trouble. One of the common... Um, one of the common views and it's held by heretics is that when Jesus went to the place of the dead, he went to hell to suffer. When Jesus went to the place of the dead, he went there to suffer because his suffering on the cross wasn't, wasn't good enough. He had to suffer more. So he went down to hell to suffer more because he had to, he had to suffer in hell. Um, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, all the crazies believe that. Um, but that's not what we want to say. And we, we want to, we want to remove ourselves from thinking that Jesus Christ needed to go down to hell to suffer more. Uh, that's not what we mean when we say that he descended to the place of the dead. So what did he do? What did he do when he descended to the place of the dead? He went to the both righteous and unrighteous compartments. What did he do? Here's the answer. He preached. That's what Jesus did. He preached. Jesus preached to both the righteous and unrighteous souls. 
He preached to both the unrighteous and righteous souls. Now, immediately we must clarify what we mean. Because when I say that Christ went to both the righteous section of the dead and the unrighteous section of the dead to preach, our minds might be quick to think that Jesus preached a message of repentance. Specifically to the wicked. So if I say, yeah, Jesus went down to the place of the wicked to preach, you might think, oh, that's good. He preached a message of repentance. To repent and believe. That's the common view. But that's false. We are to think that when Jesus descended where the unrighteous dwell, where the wicked dwell, that he offered them one more chance to repent and believe. So whatever we say about Christ descending to the wicked part of the dead, we aren't to think that Jesus preached a message of repent and believe. He wasn't giving them a second chance. So don't think that. Rather, when we say Jesus preached, and if you're taking notes, this is, this is huge. When we say Jesus preached, it wasn't a call to repentance, but a proclamation of victory. When I say Jesus preached, it wasn't a call to repentance. It was a proclamation of victory. Again, let's consider 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20. Speaking of Christ, it says, in which he also went and made proclamation. See that? He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. We've already, we've already got down that these spirits that are in prison are where the wicked dwell. And here Peter says that Christ went down there and made proclamation. And that word proclamation, if you're taking notes, this is also big, that word proclamation, it indicates not a universal call to salvation, but an announcement of victory. In the Greek, that word proclamation, when you see that word proclamation, it doesn't mean a universal call of salvation, but rather it means an announcement of victory. That's what the word means, it indicates. And this is also, this is a side note, this is also another reason why I don't believe in the majority view that Jesus Christ, through Noah, preached. Because think about being in the, think about, think about, in the days of Noah, when Noah is preaching, he's not going to be preaching a message of victory, right? He's going to be me- preaching a message of evangelism, of repentance, because that's what he did. So if we say that Jesus, in the days of Noah, preached, we have to ask, okay, what was the nature of that preaching? Was he preaching a message of repentance, or was he preaching a message of victory? Well, Noah would have to preach a message of repentance, right? Not a message of victory. But here, the Greek word for proclamation, again, doesn't indicate a universal call of salvation, but rather an announcement of victory. That's what that word means. So here we see that when Jesus went down to the place of the dead, specifically where the wicked dwell, he's not doing evangelism. He's not giving them the law and telling them how bad of a person you are. And then based on how bad of a person they are, he's saying that now you are X, Y, and Z, and you're going to go to hell. And you're going to stay here forever. But rather, Jesus is declaring victory to all the evil spirits. This is so beautiful, saints. Think about this. Jesus goes down to the wicked compartment of Sheol, to where the wicked dwell, and he announces victory. He essentially says, I won. That, that the seed or the, the serpent, the head of the serpent has been crushed. That's what he does. That God has had the victory. Isn't that amazing? So in summary, what did Christ do when he descended into the place of the dead? He preached a message of victory. He went down to where Satan and all of his uh, uh, demons lay, where all the wicked dwell. And he said, I have the victory. Praise God. 
And he also preached to the righteous as well. Now let's consider the third thing Christ did when he descended, and that is he released. He released. <clears throat> if there's anything that's going to wake you up, <laughs> not that you're asleep, but during this lesson, it's going to be this <laughs> subpoint here. The third thing that Christ did when he went down to the place of the dead, in addition to preaching, he released. Now, one question that was asked to me last Lord's Day was this. If the if there is an upper section of the place of the dead, which is either called Abraham's bosom or paradise, and that is the place where all the Old Testament saints went when they died, then does that mean that when they died, they didn't go to heaven? Do you hear the logic of the argument? That if I'm saying that there's an upper compartment of the place of the dead, which is called Abraham's bosom of paradise, which is different than heaven, am I saying that when Old Testament saints died, did they go to heaven? And what I've been arguing is no. That when Old Testament saints died, they didn't immediately go to heaven. Now, let me clarify a few things. At least one thing is, it doesn't mean that they weren't saved. Old Testament saints were saved in the same manner that you and I are saved. Belief in Jesus Christ alone. They were saved just as much as you and I are saved. And the merits of Christ were applied to them before Christ's death and resurrection. Just much, just as much as they are applied to us after Christ's death and resurrection. So I'm not saying that Old Testament saints weren't saved. They were saved. But the Old Testament saints, when they died, they didn't go immediately to heaven, but they went to a holding place called paradise. Again, when the Old Testament saints died, Abraham, Isaiah, David, when they died, they went to a holding place called paradise. Now, when I say holding place, many might immediately, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, think, oh, they went to purgatory. You think, you say holding place, automatically you think purgatory. And I had a long, <laughs> I had a long layout of, you know, what purgatory is and what is not, but Purgatory is not the same thing as paradise. Purgatory is not the same thing as paradise. Let me give you one reason why. Because in purgatory, the saints of God are the people that have died in a state of grace are there to remove all of the sin that they still need to be purged from in order for them to get to heaven. So purgatory is really like a holding place where you're cleansed. That is purgatory. And then once you're cleansed, you go to heaven. Paradise is not like that. The Old Testament saints in this holding place were already cleansed. They were already cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when I say holding place, Abraham's bosom, don't equate that to purgatory because the nature of purgatory is far different than the nature of paradise or Abraham's bosom. So the Old Testament saints, they were in comfort in Abraham's bosom. You're not in comfort in purgatory. But in Abraham's bosom, you're comforted. But heaven wasn't quite open for them yet. Let me give you two of the strongest arguments for this claim. John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, this is after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He says to her, Mary, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go tell my brother and say to them, I ascend to my father and to your father and your father and to my God and your God. Jesus has just resurrected from the dead. 
And he tells Mary, don't cling to me because I have not ascended to the Father yet. If there is anyone that should ascend to the Father once they die, it should be Jesus, right? But Jesus says here, I haven't went to the Father yet. But I'm going to the Father. Another uh, reason why I believe that once Christ died, he didn't immediately go to the presence of the Father. But rather, he went to the place of the dead. And if Jesus is saying here, don't cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, then that already implies that there's a difference between heaven and the place of the dead. Right? We see this also in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, we are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, this is a bit of a tighter argument, so stay with me. The Bible speaks of the Christian. And this is actually some of the greatest news possible, too, for the Christian. The Bible speaks of the Christian going from glory to glory. The Bible speaks of the Christian going from glory to glory, that there's degrees to glory that the Christian experiences. For example, when you die and you when you go to be with the Lord, when you're in heaven with the Lord, with all the saints, in heaven, do you have anything else to look forward to? Yes or no? Is there any advancement? Is there anything better that you're looking forward to? Your soul is with Christ in heaven. How can it get any better than this? It does get better. How does it get better? Because one day, your soul is going to be reunited with your body. That is better, is it not? So, in that instance, you have advanced from glory to glory. You went from soul to now body and soul composite. Or what about when we get to heaven? Just heaven itself. Do we have anything else to look forward to? Apart from being reunited to our bodies, do you have anything else to look forward to? Yes, we do. Well, what do we have to look forward to? The new heavens and the new earth. Which will not be primarily spiritual, but material. So when we go, so the Christian has this, there's this motif where the Christian goes from glory to glory, from one state of glory to the other. There's advancements in our estates. Well, if that is true of us, then why can't that also be true of the Old Testament saints? If there is an advancement, if there is a historical progression in the Christian life where we go from one stage of glory to the other, then why can't that also be true of the Old Testament saints? Where they go from the upper apartment of the righteous, place of the dead, to now heaven. That's an advancement, is it not? And that's what I'm arguing that when the Old Testament saints died, they were in the upper part of Sheol. And what were they doing there, saints? They weren't suffering. They weren't being cleansed of their sins. They were awaiting the Messiah. So Abraham, David, Isaiah, all the Old Testament saints, when they went to the righteous compartment of the place of the dead, when they went to the upper room, so to speak, what were they doing? They were waiting in faith, comforted, awaiting their Messiah. They were awaiting Jesus Christ. And what we see that in Christ descending to the place of the dead, he came for them. He came for them. Jesus Christ went down, met with them, and he came for them. He rescued them. The Bible speaks of this. Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a captive, a host of captives. And right after that, Paul is going to talk about when Christ ascended and descended, which we talked about last Sunday evening. Matthew Emerson says concerning this verse, those who were formerly captive to death, but now by virtue 
of their faith in the Messiah who has defeated death are in his resurrected presence until they are to raise on the last day. Christ leads all the Old Testament saints out of paradise to heaven. He advances their estate of glory from paradise Abraham's bosom to the third heaven. The same place that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians. He releases them from Abraham's bosom. He releases them from the place of the dead to their heavenly city. He rescues them from death. Hebrews 11 speaks of this. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, speaking of those who died in faith, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have that opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. Charles E. Uh, uh, Charles E. Hill says concerning this verse, These spirits of the just are now perfected and have received the promise of a better country, the heavenly one, the city that has foundations whose builder is God. And what brings them to heaven is their union with the one who is now in heaven. They're in the heavenly city and now surround the throne. In other words, saints, Jesus takes the hopeful Old Testament saints to a better country. He goes down into the righteous compartment of the place of the dead and he gathers them up and he brings with him all of the Old Testament saints to this heavenly city that they were awaiting. By Christ's person and his work, he has changed the nature of paradise. And this is is great news for us. By Christ descending into the place of the dead, specifically the righteous compartment, if you are saved, he has changed the nature of your dwelling place. Because when you die, you will not go to paradise or Abraham's bosom. But now you will go to heaven. But more so, The reason why this is so much better for the Old Testament saints is not merely a change in location, but rather they are now with Jesus bodily. The one whom they believed in, who they didn't see. They only believed in, they heard about, they heard the prophecies that this one is going to come to suffer and die. They believed in that one. And when Jesus descends to the place of the dead, I can't imagine how the souls of the Old Testament saints felt (laughs) that the one I've been waiting for for so long is now here. And he's in their presence. As one theologian has said, the Old Testament saints went from messianic expectation to Christological reality. They went from expecting the Messiah to come to when they descend to the place of the dead, he's here. The one who they placed their faith in is now in their midst. Let me just give you two quotes before we get to our last subpoint. Two beautiful quotes. One theologian has spoken of this beautifully. He says, When Christ descends to the place of the dead, specifically with the righteous compartment, Christ meets with Adam and all the men and women awaiting in the night of death. As we look at them, we can hear the echo of the prayer of Jonah. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Isn't that the prayer of the Old Testament saints who were awaiting their Messiah? In the belly of death, I cried and you heard my cry. By his death, he now holds the hand of Adam and of every man and woman who awaits him and brings them to the light. When Christ goes down to the place of the dead, He grabs the hand of Adam. He grabs the hand of Abraham. And he brings them to light. 
One last beautiful quote. The second Adam has brought up the first Adam out of the deeps of Hades and has set him, and has set forth him who was deceived at a citizen of heaven to shame the deceiver. The gates of Hades have been shut and the gates of heaven have been opened. Think of, think of that. The, the second Adam grabs the hand of the first Adam. And he brings with him all of the Old Testament saints that died in faith to a heavenly city, a better country. These two quotes are a great summary of this subpoint. When Christ descended into the righteous compartment of the dead, he released all the Old Testament saints who were awaiting in faith their Messiah and took with him heaven, took with him to heaven. <clears throat> Let's now consider the last subpoint. And that is, when Christ descended into the place of the dead, he conquered. He conquered. So we've seen that Christ descended, Christ preached, Christ released, and lastly, Christ conquered. The last thing he did, he conquered. Let's for a moment go into the, into the mind of, of Satan. <laughs> Let's for a moment go into the mind and psyche of Satan. For so long, he was trying to stop the Messiah from coming. For so long. And when Jesus finally steps on the scene, Satan's main objective was to kill Jesus. That was his main objective, kill the Messiah. But why? Because in death, when one dies, there's no escape. In death, there is no escape. When one dies, and I used to think this when I was younger, you, get a, you, you might get a second chance. But there is no second chance. When you die, you're there. And you get no second, third, or fourth chance. And Satan knows that. That if I just kill the Messiah then I can have the victory. Because in death, there is no escape. But what Satan doesn't know is that for Christ, victory will come by the way of death. You see, Satan thinks, if I just kill the Messiah, I have the victory. What he doesn't know is, the Messiah is going to get victory by dying. And when Jesus descends to the place of the dead, he conquers death. And what does he do? How does he conquer death? He takes the keys of death with him. Revelation 1.18 speaks of this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And hear what Christ says here, saints. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Praise God. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. G.K. Beale comments on this verse. The key imagery is utilized to indicate that through the victory of the resurrection of Christ, uh, the resurrection of Christ became king even over the realm of the dead in which he was formerly in prison. Now, not only uh, is he no longer held in death's bonds, but he also holds sway over who is released and retained in that realm. What we see is that in the resurrection of Christ, for the first time, for the very first time, saints, death, who has always had the victory over man, is defeated. Did you catch that? For the very first time, death has had an undefeated record. But for the first time, death takes a loss. He takes a loss. Because the one who descends into the place of the dead is the one whom death cannot hold. For the first time, death must bow to Jesus Christ. For the first time, man has entered into the realm of the dead. 
And he's kicked down the walls from the inside out. He's kicked down, he's broken down the wall, the, the, the bars of death from the inside out. Jesus enters into the place of the dead as one that death cannot hold. And he now is at the possession of the keys to the realm of death and Hades, having taken them from their masters in the descent. This is why Paul can say in, in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow in heaven on the earth. And what does he say next? Under the earth. What is under the earth? The place of the dead. Every knee will bow. People in heaven, people on earth, and people who are dead. Why? Because Jesus is king over everything in every realm. He's king over all. And he holds the keys of death. So in summary, what have we seen? That when Christ goes down to the place of the dead, he descends to both the righteous compartment of the dead and the unrighteous compartment of the dead. What does he do there? He does three things. He preaches, he releases, and he conquers. He preaches to the wicked, his victory. He preaches also to the righteous. And how does he preach? He releases them. And he conquers. How does he conquer? He takes the keys of death with him. Now, as we close, how do we live in light of this? What is the great application for us to live in light of? And of course, every doctrine is incomplete without us, and every lesson is complete without us learning, okay, we learned about this, now how do we apply this to our lives? How do we live in light of this? Just three quick things, saints. First, in learning about the descent, we see that God has not forgot about his people. In learning about the descent, we see that God has not forgotten about his people. I noted in, in uh, sub point three that Christ goes to the righteous compartment of the dead, and what does he do? He releases them. And what does that say? That Christ has not forgot his people. What's the first thing that Christ does upon death? He goes down to all the Old Testament faithful. And he preaches a good news of victory. And this is so important for us, saints, because think about in the life of Christ. Think about being a disciple at that time. Christ has just died. You don't know what's going on. You're probably thinking in your mind that the one whom I've been following for three and a half years is not the one whom I thought he was. I mean, I would be thinking that, right? That I died for a cause that wasn't worthy because now Jesus is dead. I mean, what did the two disciples say on the road to Emmaus? That we hoped that he was the one who would restore Israel. I'm sure that echoed from the lips of all the disciples after Christ's death. He's in the tomb. Think of Saturday. The first day in which, the first day in three years in which the disciples do not see Christ. They don't hear his parables. They don't hear his preachings. They don't pray with him. But in the silence of Holy Saturday on earth, there's something that's going on under the earth. In the silence of Holy Saturday on the earth, when there's still crying going on, Mary is still wailing over the death of Christ. There is a cry of victory that's happening in the underworld. And saints, this is so useful for us because when we think that God is silent, he's actually working. In our lives, we can think and look at outward circumstances and say to ourselves, God, where are you now? 
But just like on Holy on Saturday, God is doing things that you cannot see. And God is subduing enemies that you did not know existed. Praise God. Even now, saints, that God has not forgot about His people. And we see that in Christ's descent. That on Saturday, when everything is silent, Jesus Christ is His loudest. He's proclaiming victory to the dead. The second thing, uh, the way we can live in light of this is upon death, we won't go to the upper part of Sheol. We won't go to the upper place of the dead. But rather, upon death, we will be with the risen and ascended Christ. Upon death, we will be with the risen and ascended Christ. And quite honestly, I can't elaborate further, and I don't know if the eloquence of my words and can do justice to what that is going to be like. Just as the Old Testament saints were awaiting their Messiah, we are too awaiting our Messiah. Whether it be the second coming or us dying and being with Him. But we are also in a state of waiting. And I hope that when we see the resident ascended Christ, it's it's everything and more that we've ever imagined and dreamed of. I mean, the, the one who lived, died, and rose for you, the one who has changed your life completely, that you do not have to go to a holding place where you await him, but you go to a place and you are with him. And you know for certain that one day it's going to get better. Why? Because he's your example. He is the first fruits of a royal harvest. He is both body and soul. It's going to get better. We will see Christ. We will participate in the beatific vision, both seeing him, but also through the eyes of, of faith and love and charity. Our knowledge of Christ will be heightened to a place where we know Christ as He knows Himself. Think about that, saints. That we will see the risen and ascended Christ. That we won't go to Abraham's bosom, but we're going to heaven. And the third, final uh, way we can live in light of this is simply this. That death is... Such a mystery to us all, is it not? And I think the, the, the mystery of death for many of us is just the darkness of death and that we have to go through it alone. That no one's going to be by our side. But here we see that in Christ descending to the place of the death, dead, that death in the final assessment, has no claim over us. That yes, death is mysterious. And death is dark. But saints, death does not have hold on you forever. That death will not have its grips on you forever. How do we know that? Because Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. And one day, he's going to unlock those, those, that, that cell that's holding us. And we will, our souls will be released and be reunited with our bodies. The graves will be open. This is why we can, when we say, for the, for I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why, why should we not fear any evil? Because Christ has gone before us. Because Christ has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows what it feels like to die, but also He knows what it feels like to die in duration. He was dead for three days. 
Saints, don't fear death. You can fear your uh, way to dying, because none of us want to die in pain and agony. But death itself should not be a fear to us. Because in that last day, and this is the great news for the Old Testament saints, and I hope that we see this, that on that last day, when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus is going to take Satan, He's going to take all the unrighteous, He's going to take all the fallen angels, and He's going to take death itself, and He's going to toss every single one of them into the lake of fire. And there will be no more death. Death will be defeated. And it will be with Satan burning forever. That is why Paul can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? There is no sting for the Christian, right, when we die. But it's only going from one glory to the next. So, saints, that is that concludes our lesson in uh, Christ ascend to the place of the dead. Um, went a little bit longer than usual, but um, I hope that that was of some use to you. And uh, let's now pray, and then I'll turn our attention to the Lord's Supper.